Welcome to Quaker Faith and Podcast, where we will explore traditional Quaker beliefs and the variety of Quaker beliefs found today. Hi, and welcome to episode two of Quaker Faith and Podcast. We're talking about the uh, God's old and new covenants with humanity. And this is basically talking about in the Old Testament of the Bible, we are introduced to a covenant that God makes with the people of Israel, uh, with the Jews, and there's a whole lot of uh, rules and rituals and all sorts of things. Um, you know, you're probably familiar with kosher laws, things like that. And then in the New Testament, we have the New Covenant, and uh, that's the deal that Christianity has with God. And there are some distinct differences between how exactly those work. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, uh, before uh, before we got started, uh, Mackenzie and I were just you know just heard discussing the reading a little bit with one another, and uh, I was saying that I I really had um, I, I wouldn't say I really strongly disagreed with anything in the reading that we did, but um, I sort of would have gone in a different direction I think uh, than than the authors on this particular on this particular article. Um, I feel like the authors talked a lot. Um, well, first of all, I, I wasn't sure that they they necessarily gave the old covenant enough time. I, I noticed they definitely spent a lot more space on the new covenant right. when I think, you know, it's hard to, some, something that I've had to come to terms with is I'm, I'm very much, you know, I, I've, I've tended in my life to lean more New Testament and, and take the New Testament more seriously. But something that I, uh, something that I've discovered for myself is just how important it is to understand the old Testament or the old covenant. They, they mean the same thing, old Testament, old covenant. Um, to understand it and understand it as as uh, as as the the ground that the new covenant uh, arose out of and and it, you know you, you can't you can't understand Jesus if you don't understand uh, the law and the prophets. I'm in trouble. <laughs> well, fortunately, um, we do get a good dose of the law and the prophets through the New Testament, but to a great extent, just in the same way that. Um, you know, when you read the early Quakers, you can get a lot of nourishment from the early Quakers without ever having read the New Testament. Um, the same thing is true with the with the New Testament compared to the Old Testament. Um, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff in there. But but when you read the early Quakers and then you go read the New Testament and then you go read the Old Testament, it's like peeling back. Right then you're then you're like. I understood that reference exactly, and and there's there's so there's so there's so much uh, there's so much there in in the New Testament that. Um, becomes much clearer what people are talking about if you if you understand the Old Testament references, um, it, it's it's a part of the same stream. So um, I I think I think the, the 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 transition from the the Old Covenant to the New Covenant is a huge one. Um, and you know I mean uh, you know honestly we should we should really have we should really have um, a Jew with us on this program for this at least for this section because I think um, someone. Uh, who's a Jew would have uh, an amazing perspective on this, um, but for for the for, for the two. Good point. Shout out. Well, it's okay. It's, it's okay. I mean, we are we are we are you know discussing this. I think from a Christian Quaker perspective, uh, looking at this book that's coming from a Christian Quaker perspective, and um, so you know we've got our biases, um, but uh, the the fact the fact is is that uh, you can't really understand the New Covenant without understanding the Old Covenant. So. I feel like I've sort of gone on about this, but what the the, the defining moment uh, for for the for the new covenant, of course, was the arrival of Jesus in the first place. Um, his 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 uh, baptism uh, by John the Baptist in the River Jordan was the beginning of his ministry. 
Um, he was recognized by John the Baptist as being the Messiah, and you can't understand what the Messiah is without knowing um, what the Jews expected the Messiah to be based, based in their old covenant. Um, Jesus did his ministry, which was in the mold of a, a in the mold of the prophetic tradition, and Jesus understood himself as a prophet. Now, certainly more than a prophet, but a prophet nonetheless, uh, rooted in the prophetic tradition, which you can't, you know, the the prophetic tradition is rooted in the old covenant, so it's important to understand. Um, and Jesus met. Right. There's a whole lot. There's a whole lot like when Jesus says about, well, you know, prophets are always uh, rejected in their hometowns. You know, they're, the, people, the people they live with don't want to hear what they have to say. There's some background there as the prophets were frequently killed uh, throughout uh, the history of the Jewish people uh, throughout the old throughout the old covenant period. Uh, the, the, the prophets were frequently killed um, or, or exiled. Um, and, you know, the way the way the uh, the way the early church came to understand Jesus's death um, was profoundly and continues to be profoundly rooted in the old covenant, um, and uh, so all of Jesus's life and ministry, death and resurrection, is all rooted in the old covenant as it opens up the new covenant. And and uh, as as Christians, I, I think we understand the new covenant as uh, sort of fully coming into bloom. Um, on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, um, when the Holy Spirit came with a kind of power uh, and unifying strength. And that's something that, that, that our reading talked about was the, the sense of peopleness, of being drawn into unity as a people. Um, the Holy Spirit drew together a new body, a new people, a new, a new nation, you might say, but a different kind of nation than the world has ever seen. It drew together a movement. Uh, and that, uh, for Christians, is the beginning of it, it, the beginning of, of us as as a people, as as followers of Jesus, truly experiencing the new covenant. That idea of a different kind of nation kind of makes me think of like how you know we've all got our families, but then you have those friends who are like family, the the people that you choose to be with because you have something in common, and so in common other than bloodline. Mm -hmm. um, and and so the idea of because of course the old testament the old covenant is about um a nation as in a group of people who have a shared um heritage and value system etc i mean they're all descended from abraham right um so having you know with the new testament that it's not about being descended from abraham but it's more intentionally chosen Right, and that and that took a little while for the early church to figure out, including Jesus. There's there's a really striking passage that I I, lo I love to return to because it is so shocking, um, where Jesus uh, is is uh, confronted by a foreign woman, a Syrophoenician woman, so not a Jew, uh, not a part of the people of Israel, and she asks him to heal her daughter, and Jesus says no, uh, and he said he compares her to a dog. He says uh, it's not right to give the children's food, and the children referring to the children of Israel, it's not right to give the children's food to dogs. And the Syrophoenician's woman's response is, uh, but even dogs eat what falls from the children's table. And Jesus is astonished at her faith uh, and says uh, that her faith has, has healed her daughter and, and her daughter is healed. And it's a breakthrough moment it, I sort of see it as foreshadowing the breakthrough moment that the church has uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's a breakthrough moment for Jesus 
Um, now I know I know some Christians are going to argue with me about this, but but I, I think it's I think it's there in the text. Jesus is surprised. Jesus did not expect this, uh, but yet God was uh, God was opening up uh, salvation to all people, not just the Jews. Okay, you know the Bible way better than I do, so just point of clarification: this comes before the story of, about like the centurion with the the servant needing to be healed and all those. You know, it it falls it falls in different places and different synoptics, and I can't remember exactly what the order okay. was. Um, but I, I suspect I suspect it was before. Um, so I went back and checked after we recorded this, and I found that the Canaanite woman is in Matthew 15, while the centurion was actually in Matthew 8. You brought up you brought up the centurion, and that's another story, not not from the book of Acts, which happens later and is is involving the the church, but with Jesus. Do you want to tell the centurion story? I mean, there's there's a centurion who comes to Jesus and says his servant is sick and dying, and Jesus is okay. He's healed and doesn't even bother like going with the guy. Just when you get home, he'll be fine. Right, and the and the striking thing is he doesn't just heal the centurion servant. Uh, he says. Uh, he's that no one in Israel has has as much faith as this centurion does, right? So yeah, it's 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 a striking it's a striking moment, and and it it it, it is a foreshadowing too of another incident that happens in the book of Acts, which. Uh, for the for those folks who who haven't really read the Bible very much, the Book of Acts is is sort of the 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 story of how the church got started. Um, in the Book of Acts, there's a story where Peter, who's a major leader in the early church, uh, one of the twelve apostles, uh, has an encounter with a with a centurion, um, and that's where he finds out that the Holy Spirit is is moving in the lives of of non Jews, and that the church. And, and being a disciple of Jesus is open to everybody. So I, I do think I do think that's that is a theme. I think I actually think uh, now, of course, as Christians, uh, you know, we believe that that God did something decisive and new and 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 uh, uniquely important in Jesus. Um, that being said, I think we can also see it, it's it's not it's not as it's not a it's not a sharp line between the old covenant and the new covenant it's sort of a it's sort of a a, a, a fuzzy line or, or you know jesus is there and jesus is the line but like there's a progression happening throughout the old covenant towards uh you know th- through the prophets um sort of giving a preview of what this new covenant is going to look like and i and so in the old covenant uh, the focus is on nation. The focus is on God chose Abraham and Abraham's descendants to be a, 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 a special and chosen people for God to demonstrate what God's purposes were for the world. Um, and, that, and that continues on through um, a lot of scripture, uh, through Moses' uh, exit, exit to the Sinai Desert um, and building a nation that eventually takes root in Israel and, and ends up, to God's dismay, having kings and an imperial form of government. You see that uh, that opening uh, in 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 the in the old covenant, as you know, through through the prophets and through and through the history of Israel, uh, you see it you see it opening up, and there being a hint that that maybe uh, maybe there are people, and maybe there yeah maybe there are people outside of Israel that really are also having a relationship with God and can be a part of this story. I mean, one of the earliest places you see it is uh, the story of Rahab, who uh, you know as a foreigner. Um, helps uh, the Israelites uh, during their conquest of Canaan, 
and she becomes a part of of the Jewish people or a part of, a part of the a part of the the story of Israel. Um, interestingly enough, Jesus, one of his descendants, I think it's in Matthew, um, they list his descendants uh, or his his ancestors, and Jesus is a descendant of Rahab. Um, so, so even, uh, both, both Rahab and Ruth, who is also a foreigner, um, and who has her whole book. Ruth's a foreigner too? Yeah, Ruth is a foreigner. Um, and she marries, she marries into Israel. Um. Okay. Okay. And so both of those women, uh, who are foreigners and who are women are listed as ancestors of Jesus. So, so like, you know, the, the early church was not missing this, uh, this, this, this Mm -hmm. sort of continuing revelation, you might say, uh. And, but, but so with, with the new covenant though, um, it was one, it was one thing. And I, and I I do feel like they covered that in the reading from traditional Quaker Christianity. Um, it's one thing to say, you know, the, 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 the nation of Israel is God's chosen people, but there are some good individuals out there who are godly upstanding individuals. It's one thing to say that it's a new thing in the new covenant to say, who's, who who your ancestors are by blood is no longer really relevant. It's how you are in relationship to God and whether you're obedient to God and whether you're uh, following Jesus. That's what's really relevant as to whether you are part of the, uh, as, as uh, Christians would come to call it, the spiritual Israel. Um, and so there was this, this breaking down of the national barriers and the ethnic barriers of what it meant to follow God and an embracing of, of an international movement um, that, that didn't depend on your bloodline. One thing that shows up in the Old Testament, like as you were saying, leading into this new thing is in um, Jeremiah, and the book refers to this, that it says that, you know, God says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And the way that that's operating, the way we believe that operates, is from the Holy Spirit um, coming to each individual person. And, you know, that's that's the source of that law on their hearts. And, um, you know, if you look at early Quakers, they're really fond of quoting from uh, John 1. Um they use the the line from there, um, the true light that enlighteneth every man. They they use that phrase over and over in all of their writings. And I think, you know, nowadays we would want to translate that as every person, because pretty sure they're in, you know, pretty sure the Holy Spirit's in ladies too. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's you know, the Holy Spirit is that source and that's a huge thing for Quakers is the um, Holy Spirit as even above the Bible, um, you know, as we were saying in the, in episode one, um, that Christ is the word as opposed to the Bible being the word. And so having, saying, you know, the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible and that doesn't somehow make the Bible more important than the Holy Spirit, that would be ridiculous. How could, how could the book be more important than the author? Yeah. Uh, one, one thing I'd love to hear you talk about a little bit more, Mackenzie, is, uh, in this, in this, uh, breaking down of, uh, of sort of the traditional barriers that held people away from God. Um, the first was national, but there were other barriers too. And, and one of those was, uh, gender, um, in the early, in the early church, uh, women, 
had leadership roles. There's arguments over translation, but the way I read it, there were women ministers, there were women apostles, mm-hmm. and you can go back to the text and it, yeah, it, right, Junia. Yeah, and Junia, you know, foremost among the apostles. Folks who are anti-women in ministry want to try to translate that and, and twist that in some other way. In fact, in the past... Right, they'll say she was well-known to the apostles. And in the past, um, because because they knew it was a problem, uh, it was intentionally mistranslated. You know, I just want to say something here. The Bible, despite what a lot of people think, the Bible has been impeccably transmitted throughout the centuries and millennia. It's it's, it's amazing how consistent it's been. It is a, it's a, it is a faithful reproduction of the document. However, there are a few cases, there are a few cases where there's been some tampering. And one case where there was some tampering for quite a while was Junia was translated as Junius to be a man. Because there's no way they could possibly be talking about a woman. Right, right. So That must have been a typo by the previous monk. So so maybe uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Mackenzie, on, on, on that expansion of, of, uh, of, of women's role uh, in a society that, you know, we think of patriarchal societies today. Um, the ancient world that the early church emerged into was as patriarchal as you could possibly get. Okay, well, so um, first off, if you look in the Old Testament, the priests are always men, right? Um, and obviously the Catholic Church has carried that forward, and the Orthodox Church as well. The Episcopalians are like, mm, no. Lutherans are kind of split on that. You know, there's a mixed bag there. Um, but there are two specific things in the New Testament, and they're in the writings of, um, I believe it's Paul, um, not actually things Jesus said. Um, but one is not allowing women to teach men, and the other is a line that uh, more conservative churches really like to quote, which is, I do not permit a woman to speak in church. And those get interesting because um, if you look at like the, I don't permit a woman to, woman to speak, the context around that, it's saying, you know, basically ladies hold your questions until after you can ask your husband later, which leaning over and whispering, what does he mean by that? Is like a whole different ball game than actually being the person who is doing the preaching. So I don't think it's fair to compare those two. Um, as far as the teaching goes, if you look back at the Gospels, you'll see that the, the first people to proclaim that Christ is risen and to go out and you know, try to teach the masses that and try to teach the apostles that are the women. It's Mary Magdalene who finds the, the tomb empty and comes and tells the apostles, hey, Jesus is back. This is amazing. And they're like, what? She's like, no, really, really. That's a really, that's a really great point, Mackenzie. The, the, the truth is, is for the most part, um, the disciples, the male disciples come across pretty badly in the gospels. They're at, 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 yeah, they're really skeptical. At best, they're fools. But the women come across really well. Now, there are some exceptions. Jesus, Jesus is pretty harsh on his mom. Um, but, but for the most part, uh, Jesus is very positive towards women. Um, and, uh, it's, 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 uh, it distinguishes him from, from his time and his cultural milieu. And the same is true for the early church. Um, as we've said, uh, women were ministering and providing leadership, um, throughout the early church. And the same was true in the early Quaker movement. Women were very important, um, both in the case of Margaret Fell as sort of a, a networker and a supporter and a protector, um, and also as, as preachers and, and ministers of all kinds. Right. And early Quakers got into a lot of <laughs> trouble. I don't 
necessarily know if this was one of the ones where they had trouble with a lot, but certainly there was a lot of propaganda out there going, do you know about those Quakers? Do you know what they're doing? They have she preaching. And that was what they called it, she preaching, when they allowed a woman to preach. Um, but of course, we would say that when we speak in meeting for worship, we're supposed to be speaking from the Holy Spirit, right? That's prophecy. And of course, when you look in Acts of the Apostles, it says that, um, you know, God pours out his spirit and your sons and daughters will both prophesy. Mm-hmm. So we know women are in prophecy. And another one about the prophecy thing is, you know, okay, if you don't know me, um, then you can't tell because this is a podcast and you can't see me, but <laughs> I wear a head covering. And that shows up in um, the New Testament saying that a woman has to cover her hair when praying and prophesying. Well, if we weren't supposed to be prophesying, we clearly wouldn't have specific directions of what we're supposed to wear when doing it. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, you know, it really it really takes it takes some mental gymnastics uh, to to uh, say that women don't have a prophetic and a leadership and a teaching role in the church. And, uh, you know, frankly, uh, Paul's, Paul's teachings on the whole, um, and, I, and I, know, I know I'm going to get some, some progressive Christians pushing back on me real hard on this, but I would say, I would say if you look at the whole, um, Paul's teachings are very friendly towards women, and especially, I mean, even, even I would say now, but especially if you want to look at Greco-Roman culture at the time where he was doing his ministry, uh, where women were subordinated in, in just truly terrible ways that that um, for us in, in the in the industrialized West are kind of unimaginable. Um, right, it's possible to be super progressive for your time, and then well, after two thousand years, and that's how long it took. <laughs> not as progressive anymore, right. but you know, there's that whole uh, what's that rule ten percent change per year thing. <laughs> <laughs> You don't try to, if you try to for, get somebody to do more than 10% change, you're going to get a lot of blowback. Right. Well, I think, uh, I think that may actually have been a little bit of what was happening with Paul and with the early church is um, if, you read, if you read the book of Acts, uh, the early church was truly radical. I mean, this was the, the radical in every in every measure, um, radical in in their in their theology, radical in their in their treatment of women, and their treatment of outcast groups, and their treatment of of all sorts of minorities. Uh, and they were they were truly radical in uh, their economics that they that they uh, just threw aside all sense of uh, private property and held everything in common. Right. They had they had, abso- they had the, absolute communism. Yeah, from from each according to his means to each according to need. Turns out Marx is quoting the Bible. Turns out, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, the Christians were really. So I guess where I was going with that is the, the Christians uh, were tr- the early church was a truly radical group in every measure. Um, and so I think a bit of what you were seeing in Paul uh, was a little bit of that blowback was that um, as the church was attempting to uh, survive persecution, uh, trying to uh, not be completely cast out of the society they lived in, um, I, think, I think it's fair to say that, that the church, as it, as it matured a little bit, as, it, as, as that, that early fire cooled just a little bit, um, was looking for ways, you know, so like, where can we compromise a little bit um, so that we cannot be completely outcast in our society? Yeah, and I mean, other examples of that would be, like, um, where it says in some of the epistles about, uh, you know, submitting to um, your government, right? And, of course, 
you know, there have been plenty of points of conflict between church and government in terms of um, what is the correct thing to do. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the the early church was regularly persecuted, um, thrown in the Colosseum and ripped apart by wild animals. They were they were crucified. Uh, you know, Peter Peter is said this this is sort of Christian Christian lore. Um, Peter is said to have been crucified upside down. Right, which makes it really funny when people get freaked out by an upside down crucifix. They're like, oh, satanic. You're like, no, that that's that's Saint Peter. Yeah, but so I mean, you know, per- persecution was 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 no joke uh, for the early church. So. Um, However, however we feel today about some of the some of the let's say uh, uh, maybe uh, compromising things in some of Paul's letters, I think we at least got to have sympathy that they were they were in a, they were in a pretty tough spot, and it would have been very very tempting to um, sort of soft pedal a little bit some of the stuff that makes you seem like a cult. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm looking at the discussion questions and trying to see which ones we didn't hit just in the course of talking, but I think we're good to go on the first one. Uh, the old covenant involved a nation state, but the new covenant involves the church. So what implications does it have for understanding of our relationship to the state? I think we were sort of just hitting on that. So the discussion questions for this chapter, the first one says, you know, the old and new covenant are scriptural concepts, commonly known in early friends. Uh, what about those concepts you find useful? I think we've pretty well covered that. And the second one talks about the nation state versus the church. And what implications does that have for our understanding of our relationship to the state, which I think we also just covered. Plus, I think last time we touched on the two kingdoms, my kingdom is not of this world thing. Oh, did we? Okay. Well, yeah, we don't We don't need to cover it then. I'm sure I'm sure it'll come back up naturally in, in many episodes. So question number three says, being spiritually connected with others through Christ is the basis of true sharing among us and an essential element of the new covenant. How can we distinguish sharing based on our connections through Christ from sharing based on common backgrounds, interest situations, or emotional needs? I think that's a really great question. Um, and one I've thought about quite a bit because, um, you know, so Quakers are weird, right? We're really, yeah, we're really we're weird really folks. Weird. Kind of rega- regardless of what, what part of Quakerism you get into, like Quakers are strange individuals and in a strange group. Um, and what, what's been interesting for me is to find out that like, you know, for example, I'm an Esperantist. I speak Esperanto, the international language. And when I've been in that subculture, there's some weird folks too, as you might imagine, right? Also, I note that you are not the only Quaker I know who's studied Esperanto. Like, it seems to be a thing among Quakers. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure about that. But, <laughs> but, but I did notice. Uh, I noticed that you know, with Esperantists, there, there's, there's some similarities, um, just, just sort of superficially, uh, between Esperanto culture and Quaker culture in terms of, you know, Esperantists will, we will put one another up in our homes as a matter of course, and Quakers mm-hmm. do that too. Um, we have our own, we, we, liter- we literally have our own language. Quakers have our own language too, in a certain sense. We have, we have sort of a sub-language that we use among one another uh, that's very distinctive. And if you hear someone use certain phrases, you know they're, you know they're either a Quaker or trying to act like a Quaker. Yeah, trying to get a meeting house to have my wedding in the meeting that I called, they're like, oh, well, we don't rent out. And I was like, oh, you only do wed- you only allow weddings that are under your care? And they went, oh, okay, what meeting are you with? Because I said under your care. It was like the magic, I'm a Quaker too, words. <laughs> That's interesting. And, and so, 
so for me, uh, another example which you and I will both be familiar with, uh, you, you more so than me, uh, is uh, in the tech community. Um, there are all sorts of subcultures and different, different languages and frameworks and technologies have their own tribes built around them. And these are weird people. These are strange people that do strange things. And, and the strangeness builds a sort of group solidarity. And so there is, there is uh, a relationship mm-hmm. between what Esperantists do, what Quakers do, what uh, you know, people who use a certain technology do and would go to their conventions, um, and what the early, ch- and what yeah, and and what the early church was doing. It's so, okay. I mean, you, you know, like the nerds. early church, they, these were Jesus nerds, right? Uh, and and they, they they came together around their shared nerdiness around Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. But so, at what point? So so this this is a human thing. This is a thing humans do. Um, and, but so at what point is, uh, is our religious community, uh, so to speak, distinctive from all these other communities that are equally bound up together and shared, you know, lingos and practices and, and, and quirks? Because sometimes it seems like our religious communities aren't very different from, you know, Esperanto Club or, or you know, the, 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 the language, uh, uh, the, the computer language convention or whatever it is. I think the fact that what we are getting together to do when we have our meetings for worship or, you know, when any other church has their services, what we're getting together to do is to connect to Christ together. So, you know, it's asking, um, sharing based on our connection through Christ. Well, the connection through Christ is what we're there for. Uh, Question number four in this chapter says, what is it to know God directly? How do we discern who truly knows God? How do we know if we do? How can we distinguish the spirits leading and voice from our personal impulses, preferences, and thoughts, or the leading and voice of other spirits? I think I want to refer back to the fruits of the spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter whatever. It's either 12 or 14. It's, it's, on, it's, it's on one side of the love chapter. Yeah, somewhere in there. I think it's probably, I think it's probably 12. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a really, that's a really intense question with so many parts to it. It's also four questions. They put only they put a single number and then a list of four questions. Seems like cheating. I almost to to be totally honest, I feel like that 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 set of questions right there could be an entire podcast. I really do. Yeah, I mean that's how, half of that half of that podcast episode would be. How do you know when to speak at meeting? Or to speak at all? What's the last question? What other implications of the new government impress you especially? Yeah, I, I, I think for me, the, the 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 piece that I'm chewing on the most right now about the new covenant is this movement from uh, being biological, uh, being nation based, uh, being based in in in. Uh, in sort of the kind of communities that we normally interact with and understand, um, to a movement that is transnational, transethnic, and uh, in some ways trans ideological. Mm-hmm. Um, that that I would say it's you know, very you, you trans ideological. Yeah, why, why would you say that? Well, I mean, even if you just want to look at politics as one sliver of ideology, you find Christians you know, ranging all the way across the political spectrum. Well, that's true, but I'm, I'm particularly thinking of, of... So, I mean, to be honest, I don't necessarily think that all people who call themselves Christians are, are really following Jesus. Well, yeah, we were both lapsed whatevers at one point. I mean, I was a lapsed Catholic, you were a lapsed Quaker, so... 
Um, but but when I say trans ideological, I, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of even um, movements like the early church, like the early Quaker movement, perhaps like the early Pentecostals, the early Wesleyan movement, many other movements that seem to be clearly spirit led um, and and set on fire by the by the Holy Spirit. Um, just to use the early church as an example, um, there were people within the early church. Some of them were deeply committed to the Jewish law. And then there were others like Paul who were actively preaching and, and, and teaching and growing communities that barely, barely referenced the Jewish law at all. Um, and, and that was sort of an ideological difference that the early church somehow, uh, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, was able to bridge. Um, and ultimately the church decided, well, there's just two rules, I guess. Don't, don't, uh, don't participate in sexual immorality and don't eat blood. And that'll do for the law, uh, in terms of keeping kosher. Don't eat blood stuck around? Bad news for fans of blood pudding. (laughs) All right, we're out of time. So this is the part where I say, tune in next time for section 1C, Atonement and Reconciliation with Our Creator. Because everyone likes to talk about atonement. This is going to be another one of those ones where uh, we note very sharply the distinction between Quakers and a lot of other denominations. Yeah, I mean, who knows? This this next podcast might end up causing a split in several yearly meetings. Anything could happen. And I guess on that note, to the folks of Northwest Yearly Meeting, we're praying for you. Amen. You can find us on the web at quakerpodcast.org, on Twitter as Quaker Faith, on Facebook, and on iTunes. 